Well, in the spring of 1963, a lanky sophomore in high school revolutionized track and field. Richard Fosbury was a gangly teenager in Medford, Ohio, on the track team. He had never even scored a point even on the JV team for his event, the high jump. See, from that point forward, what they did for the high jump was this. It was called the scissor kick method. And what you do, would do is you would jump over the high jump bar forward and scissor kick over. But Richard Fosbury decided he would do it a different way. He started jumping off one foot and going backwards and arching his back over the high jump. And so his coach was really adamant against this and strongly disagreed with him doing this. But since he hadn't even scored a point for JV and he was, he was jumping higher with this method, his coach finally said, fine, whatever, go ahead. Well, he got really good at it. He did well in the state, and Oregon State offered him a spot on the college team. But the coach there, too, disagreed with his method. He tried to convince him to switch to triple jump. But after a summer of training in his method, Richard Fosbury jumped 6 feet 10 inches. And that was pretty high at that point. And his coach dropped the idea of his method of the high jump. Still, when people watched it in track and field, they called it novelty, weird. One doctor petitioned the U.S. track and field to make it illegal because he thought it would cause head damage in the way it was landed. So it wasn't until the 1968 Olympics where Richard Fosbury made the Olympic team. And everyone there was doing the scissor kick method. But Fosbury, with his method, won the gold medal. It's now known as the Fosbury flop and is now the method that everyone uses that is in the Olympics is that method off one foot behind your back, twisting, arching your back and going over. A teenager showed his high school coach, his college coach in the world a new method a method he believed in and stood by, and it revolutionized track and field. Today, we are going to see another teenager convinced there was a different way to live, a different way than what the most powerful kingdom in the world was saying he should live. And in that process, he made others see there is only one and true right king. Well, let's look together, shall we? What this passage talks about, about this teenager and his friends. In Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21, it's printed in your worship guide. You can also follow along in the Bible with me too. We're reading from the English Standard Version. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. 
For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We're going through the book of Daniel this fall all the way until the new year. And if you're just joining us in this, we've seen that the prediction of the prophets have come true. That Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, has been taken over by a foreign kingdom and king. And it is ugly. That king, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, has deposed Judah's king. He's taken their wealth, taken their land, and their bright young future. These teenagers, he's carted off from Jerusalem to go to their schools, given them new names, and wined and dined them in the capital city of Babylon. This is the Babylonian playbook for cultural obliteration. This is what they would do. And this is what's interesting. Among all the setting that we've been in, as these exiles have gone 500 miles away from Jerusalem into Babylon, we wonder what is going to be of them. And here where Daniel gets interesting is it zooms in with all the geopolitical things that are happening, it zooms in on four teenagers. And you wonder, what is going to happen to these four? Is Babylon going to run roughshod over these exiles? And this is where we get verse 8. And this one word, but. But. Here is the conflict. Here is a teenager that with all this empire change, all this move, exiles going over to Babylon, he is going to live differently. As we saw last week, through all this chaos that's happening to Jerusalem, God is still there. And in chapter 1, three times we see God gave, God gave, God gave. 
we see in the midst of all this chaos and this rule of Babylon and this rule of Nebuchadnezzar the king, God is there. And he is orchestrating all things for his purposes. I also love whenever Daniel is mentioned, as you'll see as we go through the book of Daniel, he's given a new name, right? Belteshazzar. But his name is always mentioned next to this. Belteshazzar is a word that takes the, one of the gods of the Babylonians and also the Assyrians, Baal. And it means Baal protect the king. But ever, and again, whenever it mentions that name, it puts Daniel's name there. Again, names have meaning. And Daniel's um, name means Elohim, the name for God, is judge. So whenever you feel like the Babylonian kingdom is taking over, when how is God going to preserve, and you see this teenager Daniel, as he grows in 70 years through the empire, you always have this name that's before you. God is judge. He is the judge over all of this. He rules nations and kingdoms. And Daniel is a reminder that God is present. Well, here is this but. What does Daniel decide to do? Well, it says he decides he's not going to defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that the, the kingdom and those that were being trained drank. There's much ink that's been spilled through church history about why exactly this, why he, uh, Daniel and his friends abstained from the meat and the wine. One argument that's been made through church history is because the meat and the wine were sacrificed to idols. So Daniel and his friends would not eat the food sacrificed to idols. But here's the thing. The veggie burgers were also offered to idols. So it's not simply that it's idols, been sacrificed to idols, that he would not eat that because the veggies also were sacrificed to idols. Another argument is says maybe it's this vegan diet. It's a benefit of the vegan diet. This is the diet that maybe Leviticus offers for you to, to do. The thing is, the Israelites still ate meat. They still had wine. In fact, we were reviewing in Romans 14, David and I, that eat, it says that the weak person is the one that eats vegetables in Romans 14. And that we shouldn't give them a hard time for being the weaker person by eating vegetables. So I don't think it's simply the dietitian thing of vegetables. Some have argued this idea of sharing table fellowship with the king and his court. It doesn't say that here. And also we see throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is with and around the king and his court and his people. So I don't think it's a removal from them. Some might say it's some ways um, giving into the moral law or breaking the moral law by eating the meat and the wine. We see none of that here either. I don't think it's saying that Daniel and his friends are not abiding by these things because they're breaking the moral law. It's not simply about stealing or adultery, using the Lord's name in vain. That's not the case here either. You know, there's no real clear answer 
So what are we to do with that? I think it's this argument. Daniel and his friends have decided they are not going to give in fully to the Babylonian kingdom. They are not going to say that the source of their strength comes from their culture or their food or who they are. And they're going to show even if we have just vegetables and water, God will provide. If you hear any point I'm going to make today, this is the point I think that Daniel 1, the latter part, makes. God is the king over this world. And he will reassure us of this even when we are surrounded by competing kingdoms. God is the king over this world, and he will reassure us of this even when we are surrounded by competing kingdoms. This, of course, does raise a question, though, when we look at Daniel 1. Why this? Why Daniel objecting to this? Right? He's given a new name. He doesn't object to that. He's educated at Babylon U. He doesn't object to that. So why object to this? Here's the thing. I think Daniel and his friends are following what the prophet Jeremiah called the Israelites to do when they went into exile in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, Daniel and his friends in going to their schools in being around them and their names being changed are saying we are a part of this Babylon. We are seeking the welfare of this city that we are in. We are going to work in it. We're going to live in it. We're going to go for its prosperity. So in one sense, they do not totally reject They could have rejected the names. They could have rejected the university like some of the Israelites did and just said, forget it. I'm rebelling. I'm going against Babylon and just gone into hiding or died. But that's not what they do. Yet at the same time, they do not totally capitulate to Babylon. There was a line. It wasn't simply the moral law. The moral law... They should have followed no matter what and not gone against it. In the same way, we live in a foreign land. We should continue to live by the moral law. But there were choices they made that said our true source of life, our strength, our wisdom, does not simply come from Babylonian kings or kingdoms. It comes from God's kingdom. 
They're not saying they would reject Babylon fully. They still serve their kings, as we're going to see throughout Daniel, that they serve them. But they do say that all this kingdom comes under the reign of a different king. See, I think the book of Daniel gives us a template. Well, one, Daniel gives a template for those that are living post-exile. That's who it's being written to. Those that have returned back to the land. Those are the ones that are reading the book of Daniel that are around other kingdoms that are around them. They're in a treacherous place. They're giving them a playbook. And those also, the diaspora, those that have been sent throughout Israel to different places throughout the world. How do you live when you're not in Jerusalem or you're in Jerusalem and you're surrounded by other kingdoms? It gives you a template of how to live like that. Tells you how to live in the world, but not of the world. And truthfully, Daniel also gives us a template. It was Peter in 1 Peter that says to us that we are aliens. We are exiles. This is not our home. This is not the full kingdom yet. That there is a kingdom to come. That we live in Babylon. We live as exiles in a broken world. And the question that we have to ask, and Daniel starts to answer for us, how do we live if it's not full embrace and not full removal as exiles in this world? See, if you start to see Daniel in this way, and you see this in the latter part, it's more than just the Daniel diet. It's more than just eating vegetables and drinking water that he's telling us what to do here. He's giving us an idea of what it, li- it is to live in embrace and also to not fully capitulate. Well, what does that look like? Tell me, pastor. This is where it gets good, right? How do I apply this principle? Are you going to tell me what movies to watch? This is the day. I'm going to tell you what movies are okay and what's are not. Is this the day he's finding it? Tell me if it's okay if I send my kid to public school or I have to send him to private school or I have to homeschool them? Is this the day he's going to finally come out with his appeal for that? Is this the day he's finding it? Tell me that my rum and coke is not allowed or that I can't go to a Taylor Swift concert. Here's the thing. We can't get into the minutia of all that. I can only say what Scripture clearly lays out for you to live. He's given us our, his moral law, the Ten Commandments. We should live by that moral law and what Scripture tells us and how we're to live. But for these things that are more questionable or gray or you don't know what's right or wrong, These are liberty of conscience issues. Saying, what does our conscience tell us on how we're to live as exiles in this place, in this foreign world? But that should make us seriously think about how we are to live. That we should not just abandon and not think about the actions we take, how we are in this place. We should let the Spirit be speaking to us. That conscience for how we can look different in this world. And also that we would seek the welfare of our city 
in those we are around. That we would show those that we're around that we are different. That we follow a different king in a different kingdom. We're also loving and we want the welfare of the city. Well, that causes us to live in this tension. And Daniel also is in this tension. And you can see the tension right here quickly in these verses with the chief eunuch. You can tell that Daniel has been, you know, praying or thinking about these things. And it says in verse 9, again, God is working. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So God is also already working and preparing the way for Daniel as he doesn't capitulate to the culture. And you see how the chief of the eunuchs lives. He fears for his life if Daniel lives a different way. He fears because his fear is of Nebuchadnezzar and that kingdom. He lives under that power. And so he is worried that if he does not live by that king's edict, he will die. I love Daniel's response to this boss. He gets the tension in what his boss is facing. He doesn't say to his boss, no, it's my way or the highway. He's not a jerk about it. Instead, he says, well, let's test this, shall we? For 10 days, give me and my friends water and vegetables and see what happens. See, Daniel in the tension, he lets other people see and he trusts God for the results. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, I do not live under any kingdom. I find it very weird that you even talk about kings still, right? We live in America. There's no kings. I live the way I want. Well, whether we admit it or not, we all live under some king or some worldview. Maybe it's a worldview that says, I need to be a good person. Or life is about being happy. Or being in the right relationship. Or having a family. Or being my authentic self. And like the chief official, if that is challenged or that's threatened, your ability to live sexually the way that you want to, to do what you want to have freedom, if that's challenged, your existence is challenged. You cannot tell me to live a certain way. See, that shows that you live under some kingdom or some rule or some worldview. See, Daniel is speaking to the worldview of Babylon. And he's saying there is a better way to live. There is a better king. There is a better kingdom that I'm going to commit myself to that I want my friends also to commit their, their lives to. It's greater than the wealth that this kingdom has, greater than its food, greater than all the land that it owns. 
there is something greater. This morning we admitted what kingdom we live under. I don't know if you just said the words because that's what you have to do when you're at church or you actually believe it. Maybe you're someone that does not believe it today. And so I want to reiterate what we admit, what we are saying as Christians. We admit as Christians that God created the world. Everything. He created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the best way for us to live. In fact, life has full meaning when we're in relationship with him. That is the kingdom that we believe in as Christians. That's the worldview that we are under. I wonder if you live under that king or not. In that kingdom. Especially when competing kingdoms come your way. Let's talk about bosses, shall we? It's always fun to talk about our bosses, right? Yes, uh, David, thank you, yes. Maybe your boss's kingdom's goals are different. Productivity. Climbing the ladder. Your extra hours to make sure things are done. And when you're at work, this Babylonian kingdom is being pushed. How are you going to respond as a Christian living under a different kingdom in glorifying God. It says your hours at work are not what give you meaning and purpose. That you simply being productive for money or climbing the ladder is not the number one goal in your life, but in fact it's to glorify God. How will you communicate that? What is the nuance in that place? I can't tell you what that looks like. I don't know if it means not working, more hours. I don't know if it means saying no to certain projects. I don't know if it means saying no to certain things that might compromise things for you. God's got to work in your conscience for that. But when you do stand up to that, how do you do it? Are you a jerk? I live this way. Forget you, the way that you live. I'm living this way as a Christian. You see, Daniel, he does it gently. He understands that this chief, this boss, is created by God. He is under God. And he gives time for his boss to see how God is working in his life and with God working in his life is actually, it is more productive. Maybe if you show how God works in your life to your workplace, how it brings joy to your life, peace, patience, kindness, it might show your workplace. It might show those kings and bosses in your life, that there is a greater king. It also might make us think as Christians about how we interact in this world. That we should seek 
the welfare of the city. We should not remove ourselves from its people and its workplaces and its schools. That we can show that God reigns and he is the head over all kingdoms. Let's take the application even deeper, shall we? When reading about these teenagers, it makes me think about being a parent of almost three teenagers in just a couple months in my house. Here these teenagers are, 500 miles from home, the pressure of a foreign kingdom that is showing them glittery things, but they have conviction to follow Yahweh. You might not know this, but one-third of this church is under the age of 13. One-third of this church. What are we going to do? What is it going to mean, parents, for our children to have the convictions in their heart when they live in this world? We do live in Babylon as exiles. This is a world that has fallen, that lives in opposition many times to Christ and his kingdom. It doesn't mean we simply throw a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old out and just go deal with it. We need to protect them. But more importantly, we need to shape their hearts so when the time comes, They can live by the right kingdom. Are we showing them what kingdom brings life? Are we showing them the kingdoms that are competing for their hearts? Please hear me. I want to make sure I say this correctly. A trap that we often fall into within our sphere of the church calling Bible-believing, evangelical Christians, is we, the trap that we fall into is that we believe by sheltering our children, we are removing them from the Babylonian message. When many times we're blind to the Babylonian messages that we are giving them ourselves. That we think, okay, if we remove them from the world, then they will not fall into the Babylonian trap. When in fact, in our own homes, what we're communicating is a different worldview than God as king. What are our own kingdoms that we show to our children? Give me grandkids. Be excellent at sports so I can live vicariously through you. Go to college. Get a good job. Look good. I would argue that these messages that we give our children are stronger than the messages of drinking, smoking, sex, and drugs. And they will capture our kids a lot quicker than those things will. 
And these messages of success in being good, in being moral, or whatever it might be, can influence our kids, whether we homeschool them, or private school them, or send them to public school. Too many of our children are walking away from the faith. Too many. Because we now have not put in the core of their heart who is the real king. We would rather them have worldly success than the suffering and struggle and tension that comes with following Jesus. Some of us as parents need to repent for the messages we've given our children. And we need to show them in our lives what kingdom we actually follow. That money does not rule us. That romance is not the most important thing. That leisure is not what life is all about. But it is in fact God our King that brings us personal life. That they might see that in our lives. As we tell our kids, I'm sorry for living for the wrong kingdom. For making you live after things that are not good. We wonder why we have an anxiety problem with our kids where over a third of them are medicated because we are pushing on them success in the world rather than giving them the life and the ease and the burden that is lifted by following Jesus. Oh, I know the fear. The fear of sending your kids to Babylon. What will happen? You know, the recent research that was found out in the great dechurching finds this to be the case. That secular higher education actually doesn't have a negative effect on Christian faith. And it's not as well founded as we think just because a child receives secular education that they will walk, from their faith, walk away from their faith. Ryan Burge, political science professor at a secular university, wrote in the Wall Street Journal this, It pains me to say that I do not have much influence on the students in my courses. Looked at in its entirety, the college experience may actually make students more sure of their religious beliefs after they graduate. This is known as the inoculation effect. When someone is confronted with weak attacks on their beliefs, they become more prepared to defend those beliefs when they come under serious attacks. It's how a vaccine works. Similarly, challenging a young person to defend their beliefs in a supportive, open environment like college may leave them better prepared to hold firm to their convictions later in life. This article was written just six months ago. That does not mean that we just let our kids just go out. No, instead, we have the awesome responsibility to prepare these children in their hearts to what the true king is. And to admit our own Babylon, Babylonian kingdoms in our own life 
and show them Christ is king. In the midst of this Babylonian university, God gave to Daniel and his friends again in verse 17. He guided them through this in learning, in literature, in wisdom, in all understanding, visions, and dreams, which were very important to Babylonian culture. He guided them in Babylon. And through all that training, when they were done with Babylon, Babylon University, they graduated and they came into the king's court and they were like no other. Ten times better. They had influence and power in the Babylonian kingdom. And they received benefits because of it. God was with them and blessed them because they followed him. I think that is the case. God will bless us if we follow him in this world. But that principle is not always true. Just because we follow God doesn't mean we're going to be blessed financially or everyone is going to like us. We see that they don't always like Daniel and his friends. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we'll read later about the fiery furnace, they said, whether we live or we die, we serve the Lord. This isn't some prosperity gospel thereafter, but they do believe there is a greater king. Some people wonder about verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. might not know, that's 70 years later, and why would that mention it? Because it was King Cyrus, actually not a Babylonian king, but now a Persian king, that would send the exiles back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall and the temple, what we read in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I think it's put there to remind us that the end goal is not Babylon. They're still in exile. And it's pointing forward to what will come. That they will leave the exile and return home. See, following a king here might have benefits. Following Jesus might have benefits. But still, there will be tension. We don't look seriously to the benefits that are here. But we look in hope to the kingdom to come. And when we look in hope towards that, just as like Daniel and his friends and those in exile looked forward in hope that they would return to Jerusalem, it helps us not to conform fully to this world, thinking that is all there is. And it also helps us help this world that they might see the beauty of the world to come on new heavens and new earth. We live in the already and the not yet. Some of us, when we read this passage, we think, well, I'm going to dare to be a Daniel. And many times that can cause us not to be gracious, jerks, or even hide from the culture. 
Some of us don't do that at all. Instead, we capitulate to the culture around us. It's too hard to trust a different kingdom. The book of Daniel, as we see as we go through, it will give us continual visions and hope through these images, especially as we go to the latter part of the book, of a kingdom to come and things that war against us. And it will put in our minds the ideas of a kingdom that will be good with resurrection life. But some of us might wonder as we read Daniel and hear about this kingdom and this king and all these things, where is it? Show me. Show me where that king is. Show me where that kingdom is. Here is the good news for you, Christian. We have a king that has showed up to our world. He came from his home more than 500 miles to live among us, to live in exile, to live in this foreign world. He did not run from this world. He engaged this world. He did not capitulate to this world or become corrupted by it, but lived a holy life in the midst of it, perfectly, better than Daniel and any of his friends could. See, and through his perfect life, he showed us he was able to conquer the fallenness of this world, to take on its sin, to live perfectly, to die and then conquer it through his resurrection so that he might show the world that he truly is the king that reigns. See, Jesus reassures us, no matter what is around us, that he is the one to follow. That he allows us to engage those around us and care for them and love them despite the pressures we might face. And that we can live by his truth and show the world that he is the king and he is worth following. 